Our first scripture reading this morning comes to us from the book of Genesis, the 22nd chapter, verses 1 to 8. Let's listen together for a word from God. After these things, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moira and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I shall show you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. He cut the wood for the burnt offering and set out and went to the place in the distance that God had showed him. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place far away. Then Abraham said to the young men, stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood from the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac and he himself carried the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Isaac said to his father, Abraham, Father? And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, The fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And so the two of them walked on together. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second scripture reading also comes from the book of Genesis, this time the 12th chapter, verses 1 to 4a. Let's listen again for a word from God. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and the ones who curse you, I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. And Lot went with him. The word of the Lord. Graham just read two of the most well-known uh, stories from the book of Genesis, which in Hebrew is Bereshit, and which means beginnings. So the book of beginnings has these two well-known stories of one of the most well-known patriarchs of the Judeo-Christian religious tradition, Abram. Did you notice how he gains? He had two more letters in the first reading than he did in the second reading. Take a look. Uh, we, of course, we flipped them chronologically, but in Genesis 12, Abram is just Abram, but by the time we get to 22, he has a ha added, and is Abraham. First famous story in 12 of Abram really 
Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 is really considered one of the most important verses in the Bible in that it is the first, it is the very beginning of what we would call sort of historical biblical literature. Everything that happens before that, prehistory, flood, Adam and Eve, all that kind of stuff, it's looking backwards. But once we start with 12, chapter 12 of Genesis and with Abram, we are in familiar territory with real cities, real places, uh, not necessarily real dialogue, who knows, uh, but certainly a different kind of truth that, that, than what is uh, shared in the, what we call the antediluvian parts of Genesis, the pre-flood texts. The call of Abram when God says, go, get up, and go to a land that I will show you. The other text, which Graham read first, also as famous, but a lot more troubling, and in recent decades, increasingly uh, an unpopular biblical text, the sacrifice of Isaac. Most of us know a little bit about that story. I won't recount it for you now, but I want to point out that in one story, God says to Abram, go get up and go to a land that I will show you and you'll be blessed and your descendants will be like the sands and the grains of sand and you'll, and you'll be a blessing to the world. And on the other text, a very famous text, God says to Abraham, go get up and kill your son. And that text is being rightfully re-examined these days. It's such a harsh text. But I'm not so sure we should throw the teenager out with the bathwater and just never look at this text about uh, in chapter 22 of Genesis again. Because think about it. Isaac is probably in his teens, young teens, an adolescent, a tweener, who knows, when his father takes him up on the mountain and tells him, oh, don't worry, God will provide a ram, a, a sacrifice, a lamb. Um, and... Uh, his father, of course, as we know, ultimately does not uh, have to carry out this, uh, this terrible uh, act of killing his own son to prove his uh, allegiance to God. But when I think about that age, I can, you know, I mean, I have a 17-year-old right now, and it's tough sometimes. Yeah. Um, not saying I want to do anything harsh, but just saying I understand, <laughs> right? Uh, it reminds me of uh, one of my very close friends in, uh, when I was growing up, uh, teen, uh, junior high and high school, uh, converted to Mormonism. And I was so close with this person, I was her boyfriend and, uh, uh, for a long time. And uh, I seriously considered it. Uh, and no disparagement of that religion, which to me, uh, and I know it quite well, because a lot of people where I went to high school are, are Mormons, um, it's, not, it's not Christianity, and for kind of a, even despite its name, uh, for a strong reason. But I won't go into that here other than to say that this friend of mine, uh, who's still a friend, uh, uh, would say, came over and loved my parents so much and was very concerned that we weren't in on this great new thing she discovered, which was to be with her, be with her family for all time and eternity. That's a big, important part of Mormonism. And it's, it's a great vision, mostly. Uh, and she said to my father, I was an arrogant 17-year-old, nobody could tell me anything, and my sister was, you know, in the process of destroying everything around her <laughs> and leaving home. And so this friend of mine said to my dad, Mr. Horn, don't you want to be with your family for all time and eternity? <laughs> and he said, and I quote, hell no. That's not heaven to me. And at the time I was offended, but I get it now. 
Let's pray together. May the meditations of our hearts together upon this, your word to us, be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I mentioned Go, Dog, Go by P.D. Eastman, written two years before I showed up on the scene, 1961. Uh, Oh, Eastman also illustrated that book, and we read that to our children as well. It was wonderful. Like so many toys and books, I got to go back and do it all again when I had my children were younger. Um, The book, if you don't know it or if you've forgotten, describes the actions and interactions of a group of highly mobile dogs who operate cars and other conveyances uh, in pursuit of work, play, and a final mysterious ultimate goal. Anybody remember what it is? A dog party. Right? That's That's how the book ends. Um, and it, the book introduces concepts such as color uh, and simple language and humor and, among other things, uh, how to tell a succinct story with a big ending or maybe a longer story with a big ending. Um, and the importance of goal setting and celebration. It's a great book. I love it. It helped me to learn how to read. It helped my kids learn how to read. And uh, it brought some wonderful uh, moments together as parents and kids when we were raising our children when we were younger. Um, Now, our two texts from today, uh, from Genesis chapter 22 and Genesis 12, uh, remind me a lot of Go, Dog, Go, and the reason is because of the language that's used by the author of Genesis, whoever that person or persons was or were. And the reason I think of Go, Dog, Go is because there are only two places in the entire Bible, all 66 books of the Bible, 39 in the Old Testament or Hebrew Scripture, 27 in the New. There's only there are only two places in the entire Bible uh, where God addresses a human person with a particular uh, personal compa- command or imperative, and that is in the two texts we read this morning. The Hebrew is lech lecha, which means go, you go. Kind of like go, dog, go, go. Greg, go. Go, Graham, go. It works better with G's, doesn't it? G-R's, yeah, those are the best names. But uh, it's the same command in both texts. So they're both very different in, narr- narrative, in the narrative sense. Um, God's shocking command to Abraham that he offer his beloved firstborn son Isaac, who was a miracle baby after all, right? Abraham, Abram, and his wife, Sari, were very, very, let's just say, beyond childbearing and child-raising years when, when Isaac showed up. Uh, the command to offer this miracle baby, this beloved child, up on Mount Moriah. Uh, and then, of course, the very, very famous text that is attributed to Abraham in the book of Hebrews of the New Testament as the definition of faith. God said, go, and Abraham said, okay, I'm going. Had no idea where God was taking him. Both words, both times, lech lecha. Go, you go. And in both cases, Abraham is severed or cut off from temporal relationships with himself. Think about it. Um, In Genesis 12, 1, where Abram is introduced out of the blue in the Bible, the first thing we hear is that 
Abram was a wealthy person, had family, had cattle, had herds, a home. He kind of reminds me of a sort of Israel, land of Israel version of Yellowstone. You know, the Kevin Costner guy? You know, he built up a lot of, of land and wealth and family, and all of a sudden, this voice from the divine, whatever that means, in his heart, in his ears, who knows, says, go, you go to a land that I will show you. Head west, young man. And then, all of a sudden, Abram, by answering yes, is cut off, in a sense, from his past. All his land, all that has shaped his identity, his sense of self, it's gone. And in Genesis 22, just 10 short chapters later, Abraham, having picked up an H.A. along the way, is asked, in a sense, to give up his future, to sacrifice as a sign of his love for and faith in and trust in and obedience to God to sacrifice his only son and to go when God said go. And in doing so, Abraham, in both cases, cuts himself off from that which had identified him up until that point and what he thought was going to identify him in the future. All that he had accumulated, all of his relationships, all of his love, all of his hard work, go, leave it behind. Take your beloved son, this miracle child, whom no one ever expected, who's growing up and is very well behaved and good in school, assuming there were schools, who knows? Cut yourself off from your future, your firstborn son, the one who should inherit all that you have and all that you are. In both cases, this go, you go, lech lecha, orders Abraham to trust Nothing except God and God's voice, even though God makes a point of saying, I'm just going to show you later how it's all going to turn out. I'm not going to tell you now. Most of us would try to negotiate that. Go, you go. I'll go if you tell me how. How many meetings? What time? <laughs> you know. uh, what's it going to cost me? Can I still do this? Can I still do that? There's no negotiation here. Um, if you think about it, especially if you think about Genesis as a brand new book just published in the ancient Near East, let's say, you know, 3,000 years ago, more or less, uh, maybe a little bit less, uh, it introduces a religion, Judaism, that is so different from all the religions that exist in that day. In the ancient Near East, prior to Judaism, God's behaved in highly human ways, like the Greek gods, the Roman gods, for example. Uh, they had human loves, hates, concerns, grievances, talents, faults. But while gods in these sort of uh, other ancient Near East religions were highly personified, they did not have meaningful relationships with humans. Humans were playthings for gods, just means to an end objects of desire or obstacles to the gods getting what they want. Now, all of a sudden, with Judaism, with the introduction of Abram, whose ultimate circumcision shows that he and all of his descendants and their families are set apart. They're different. They are in a very personal relationship with the divine, which is up, up until that point unprecedented. The idea that God would lower God's self to be in a relationship with a little bit of a little human, right? Uh, and from Genesis 12 on, but especially 
at Genesis 22 as well, when Abraham answers the command, lech lecha, go, you go, and says, I'll go, I'll do, whatever you ask me to do, um, we see now a religion in which human beings are in this connection, this communion with the Lord God, the God of creation, in a way that is unprecedented, a genuine, mutually loving, unswerving communion between humans and God. It's worth reminding ourselves with that in mind that we call this a communion table. This is a relationship table. When we come to it, when we gather around it, when the table is passed in the pews, whatever form of communion we we celebrate, when we celebrate the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, we are going to, we are participating in a place where relationship happens. Not just doing a ritual. We're meeting God in the same way as if we were letting God put a blindfold around our eyes and guide us forward. This should be an incredibly reassuring place, and in fact, that's one of the very few things in the Presbyterian Christian tradition, sacraments, baptism, and the Lord's Supper do. They don't do anything, like in other traditions. Uh, I always tell parents, I'm good, but I can't get God to love your baby any more than God already does. And you don't have to go to the communion table in order to be accepted and welcomed into the presence of God in our tradition. We baptize and we go to the table because we're already embraced and welcomed through Christ. And we are meeting God sometimes for the first time, sometimes after a long absence, and sometimes just from yesterday in a way that is reliving this incredibly close relationship where we have no idea where it's going to take us. We only know we're not alone as we go. I just saw uh, on YouTube earlier this week one of those, do you see those, every now and then you get these videos in the news or online where, you know, one of these, a, a military parent sneaks back home and surprises their child. Uh, this, this time it was a woman who was um, in the Middle East uh, with her army gear and her daughter was doing some kind of presentation in their grade school gym and she snuck up and I don't think she'd seen her daughter in over a year. Uh, and you had this this moment of communion and relationship and, um, and meeting again uh, that was so powerful. And that really is what happens at the Lord's table when we celebrate that our tradition, which we inherited from Judaism, is about answering the call, go, you go. Go, Maria, go. Go, Chris, go. Go, Amy, go. To a place that I'm going to show you later. <laughs> Not now, but we're going to be together as we do it. Um, God's call to us is always to a narrow path, but it always involves releasing us from other allegiances, especially identifying allegiances, things that we think make us who we are. For example, when God calls Abram to go and leave his lands and cattle and his home and all that he'd worked for behind, um, when they get on the road, all of a sudden you can tell that Abram has changed. All of a sudden, he is not interested anymore in land acquisition and real estate and acquiring cattle herds. And he allows Lot, to his brother, to just pick up whatever lands he wants. Abram suddenly doesn't care about that anymore. He really has a new way of defining himself and his self-worth and his value. Now Abram trusts in God's promises, not in the richness of his pastures or the vastness of his cattle. 
It's not to mean that Abram doesn't care about his family anymore. He does. In fact, he wants Isaac, after Isaac survives that camping trip, uh, to make sure he marries within the clan so that he's loved and supported in a way that he should be. Uh, but it's just that I, Abram no longer defines himself by what his son does. That's a trap we parents fall into a lot, I think. Uh, one of my kids is getting ready to look for colleges, and I have a pretty good idea where she should go. I'm pretty sure it's not going to work out the way I think it should, but hey, I have my ideas. Um, you know, when I, when I was a kid, um, my parents were uh, unlike other parents in lots of ways, but one of them was they made it very clear to my sister and me from the very beginning that the most important thing in our family was their marriage, not us. And they were very loving parents. My sisters would be the first to tell you that. Uh, very loving parents. I never saw my parents take seconds at any meal until after we were done, until I was 18. Then my dad started eating everything. But uh, <laughs> that, they were that. But, but they made it clear that what we did or didn't do was not going to define them. And at the, at the time, it kind of was upsetting. <laughs> you know, like, what do you mean? Don't you care? They're like, you do what you have to do, but we're, we're not going to let it threaten us because that gave them the sense of self to love us without anxiety, without needing things to turn out a certain way. And that was a great, uh, a great gift that they gave us. There's a, a Jewish uh, commentator. Uh, I want to share her thoughts on Abra, Abraham's willingness to answer the call in these go-you-go moments in Genesis. Because we're beginning the season of Lent, the journey of Lent, as we move toward the cross, we are, again, as Christian people, hearing this command from God now through the words of Christ, follow me. To f- you, if you, anybody would follow me, they have to take up their cross and follow me. I'm going to the cross, and you have to go too. And I can't tell you now exactly how it's going to turn out, but I promise you I'll be with you up until that horrible moment and beyond. Whatever that hard thing is you have to do, I will be with you. We are all hearing that call Go, you go, again this morning. And Aviva Gottlieb Zornberg has these insights into Abrams and Abraham, as, they, as he changes names, as his, to his willingness to answer the call. She says, the process of journeying to a destination in both cases is unspecified. The effect of deferring essential information is, strangely, to make Abraham's destination more precious. He will travel without the support of prior knowledge, in a sense, without solid ground under his feet. The land that God will show him will first live in Abraham's imagination. He's not sure exactly what it's going to be. In imagination, one one apprehends an infinitude where the eventual disclosure can lodge. When God, therefore, launches Abraham on a journey to the land that I will show you, or when God commands Abraham to take his son up to Mount Moriah to a place that I will show you, God endows Abram, his follower, with a sense of mystery, a mystery which requires trust. John Calvin, the founder of the Presbyterian Reformed Protestant tradition, said the communion at the Lord's Supper, the sacrament uh, that other churches call the Eucharist, is first and foremost a mystery that nobody can define, where we meet God spiritually, the true presence of God in the broken body and poured out blood of Christ. Zornberg goes on and says, certainly there are times when we don't know where we are going, both in terms of outward destination or inward transformation, but that only means we are closer 
to the father of our faith, Abraham, who experienced both journeys at the same time, outward and inward. This movement toward an unknown place or an unknown outcome is especially uncomfortable for us because we have been taught to be in control of our lives. We think that traveling without a goal is a sure sign of deficiency, but perhaps we have forgotten that God is the only one who actually knows where we are going, and the rest of the journey of our lives is and should be entirely based on trust. And then Aviva Gottlieb Zornberg ends by saying, would you really want it any other way? Go, you go into a land, into a place, or to an outcome that right now may seem impossible to you. But I will show you because I will be there with you. Amen.